0: Ladies and gentlemen, July 21st, 2023, I am Matt Belinsky. This is your weekly dose of sanity, the prevailing narrative. Going to be your only weekly dose for a few weeks as I'm going to be out of town. But in the meantime, if you want to know what's going on in the world, or at least get my take on it, you can follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Primarily Twitter and Instagram. Don't worry, there will be no shortage of activity and commentary even while I am away. But in the meantime, what do we got to talk about this week? A bunch of interesting, or we could one could say Disturbing stuff around sex and gender and some uh, uh, new sexual mores in our society. One assistant health secretary, Rachel Levine, transgender person who was born, Richard Levine, had some interesting commentary regarding childhood puberty um, and more so disturbing commentary coming from an authority p- figure in public health. Uh, I don't know if anybody has been following the saga of a gentleman named Adam 22, but he's actually a pretty big podcaster. He's married to a porn star uh, who goes by the charming name Lena the Plug, and uh, he got involved uh, embroiled in a little controversy that I think is very indicative of where we've kind of lost ourselves in, in letting some of the sex positivity movement take us way beyond what we thought would be healthy in, in allowing for a more kind of libertine uh, discourse around sex. And then one topic I talked about last week was about how certain weird cultural phenomenon certain has taken on a left-wing valence versus a right-wing valence. And this week, the battleground around that is the sperm count. A lot of people commentating concerned about the supposed drop in the sperm count. You'd think, okay, well, this is something that really shouldn't happen. Have any political bifurcation, but no, even that has become politicized, and we'll talk about that in a moment or two. Also, troubling stuff from the criminal justice system around the notion of cash bail, uh, uh, a concept that has been part of our legal system in the criminal justice system for decades, and it's coming under fire in a couple jurisdictions, primarily blue jurisdictions. Go figure. Um, I was on Fox News this week actually discussing it. So, groundbreaking ruling in the state of Illinois on it, uh, another judge ruling in California recently. So, we're going to be getting into that. But first and foremost, the media industry in absolute disarray. For the first time since 1960, uh, both the Writers Guild and the, uh, the Screen Actors Guild, so both the writers and the actors, are striking simultaneously. And usually, you know, the entertainment industry has undergone work stoppages and strikes. It happens at least once a decade or maybe even twice a decade. The last big one was the writer's strike in 2008. So this is really nothing new. But on the other hand, if the writers are striking, you can still produce whatever content has been written. If the actors are striking, you can at least keep on writing projects and developing projects that are ready to go once the actors are back working. In this instance, and once again, hasn't happened since 1960, both the actors and the writers striking at the same time. Hollywood essentially comes to a standstill. And so is that a big deal? Well, one interesting comment comment from uh, a guy I follow on Twitter named Clifton Duncan. The worst thing about the Hollywood shutdown is now the only entertainment we have is podcasts, YouTube, video games. Books, music, friends, family And 100 years of superior television and film Uh, The implication here obviously Is that in the the new media environment Which is a different environment Than the last major work stoppage in 2008 There's so many more substitutes In that interim period since 2008, the entire digital and influencer economy, TikTok, Instagram, all these other social media uh, avenues for finding content and entertainment and and the battle for eyeballs and attention have sprouted up uh, beyond that. And as we'll get to in more depth in a second, all these streaming services, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon, you have access to this uh, immense library to a hundred years of content at your fingertips, no matter what. So are the actors and writers biting off more than they can chew in this environment? where, you know, as Clifton says, there, there's so many other ways for people to get their fix in, term, in terms of content and like, okay, great, you know, we're going to miss a couple of years of Marvel movies, but consumers aren't going to really miss it. So in this case, do the studios have more leverage because, hey, they can still serve their audiences content from 15 different channels of di- distribution. And even if they're not making new movies and new television, there's already so much access to movies and television that were already made that doesn't really matter. We'll dive into that in a second. But I think first and foremost, you want to think, well, why does this matter. Right, And I think it, it, looking back on it We kind of take for granted that the American film industry and to a lesser extent The television industry was the greatest Cultural engine ever to exist over the Course of the 20th century And The notion of cultural imperialism It wasn't just faded, it wasn't Destiny that when uh, Motion pictures or, or talking pictures Were invented in the early 20th century That the American film and television industry Was going to be utterly, utterly dominant As it was, I mean we, we just take it for Granted at this point that ooh, all the big movies stars were American. All the big movies, the film industry out of Hollywood operating at the United States was so dominant worldwide for, for nearly a century. Um, and that kind of, you know, that helped enhance America's hegemony and particularly the cultural hegemony, uh, and a cultural imperialism. The promotion of American culture through films is a phenomenon where America subtly wants to dominate the world by spreading its own culture and tradition through movies. America's transferring of culture becomes more relevant while the concept of Americanism is known worldwide since Became the world superpower. And that is kind of interesting, right? Is that when America did kind of establish itself as the leading Western superpower right after World War II? Oddly coincided with the explosion of film and television, right? I mean, it's kind of interesting timing, but we rode that to great success and great prosperity, both financially and culturally. Now that is somewhat at risk, and it's been put at risk by uh, a digitized world, um, by streaming services and social media, um, even though streaming services and social media America is still dominant. But at least the, the traditional t- film and television world, their stranglehold, It's no lo- those are no longer the, the solely dominant means. And so in terms of economics, what is going on here for decades, film and television were able to roll with the punches of new technology, right? Um, It was a concept called windowing. Every time technology brought us a new way to distribute and deliver content to audiences, a business model formed around it, right? So initially you had movie theaters and people would buy tickets to go to the movies. Then you had television and you had advertisers advertising on TV. Then you had VCRs and recorded content and home video and a business model kind of formed around that. And the the talent unions and the actors and the writers and the directors and whoever was making those movies and generating all the revenue, they worked out a deal that said, OK, from this medium, when you distribute this content through this medium, here's generally how the economics are going to work. And that kept on happening over and over. And it was very prosperous, particularly in the ages, uh, the late 1990s in the early 2000s with DVDs because consumers were just buying movies on DVD that they had already seen in theaters, that they had already watched on VHS, and you just kept on coming up with these very prosperous ways to monetize content through new means. In the film industry, this would tie into back-end net profits. On television, it would tie into residuals, that when you show a television program uh, over and over again on a different station or you sell the DVD, that the actors and the writers get paid off that new usage. And particularly, I think you guys will find that int- this interesting interesting at uca law school my television law professor was a guy named ken Ziffern and Ziffron was the most successful television attorney ever to exist you know back in 1992 when uh fox stole the nfl rights from cbs one of the biggest deals in television history he represented fox i mean, he was in the middle of all the great big deals out there in the tw- late 20th century and what he described is said at tv shows always ran a big deficit the first three, four years. You go make a TV show, even if it's on TV, you're running a massive deficit. You go make a television show, even if it's on, even if it's getting great ratings, the first two, three, four years, it's always running a deficit. But what happens is if it makes it to about three or four seasons and 80 to 100 episodes, then you get into what's called syndication. Okay, All those shows, I'm sure you saw it, depending on how old you are, whether it be Cheers back in the 80s, Seinfeld in the 90s, Friends, those shows that you see run not in prime time across all these different cable uh, or local stations, I mean, the deals for those shows in syndication were massive. So the, the the goal in television was get a show through the first three, four seasons to have enough episodes to sell in syndication. Then you sell it in syndication and it's just a, ma- it, a massive windfall. Anyone involved in a show that made it to, to syndication, if you got it to two two of those shows, no matter what the shows were, you never have have to work again. The actors on Friends, the actors on Seinfeld, massively wealthy people because of syndication, right? But then streaming comes along. All of a sudden, no more syndication because you don't sell a show to different platforms, two different stations. Once the show is on Netflix or Hulu or Amazon, if they own the show, right? If it, it's a Netflix or Amazon show, you just keep on, anyone who wants to watch, it keeps on watching it on Amazon or Netflix. And a great example of this was Orange, uh, Orange is the New Black. And actually, there was a New Yorker article that mentioned how Orange is the New Black was kind of the the signal that showed that the the business model on television, particularly for talent, the bottom had fallen off. the, The piece was called Orange is the New Black Signaled the Rot Inside the Streaming Economy. And you look at the show. It was right around the time of House of Cards, one of the first early successful um, a Netflix original showing, hey, these streaming services can also create original content, their own content, and it can be successful. Um, very popular show, very well regarded. But the actors and the writers who were on that show, they just did one deal they did one deal, they got paid for an episode, they got paid for the show, and then for all those other times, that show was streamed on Netflix, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, probably even tens of millions. They didn't get paid for those additional viewings, okay? So they ended up, you know, it was not that lucrative for the talent on these shows, and that is what has upended the television world and to a lesser extent the film world, is that now you don't get the the talent, actors, writers, directors, do not necessarily get paid based on additional viewing, okay? So you don't get paid based on those additional windows, whether it be you know uh, an, from theatrical film to home video or television to syndication. That's a problem, particularly for the talent guilds. It was even a bigger problem because Netflix didn't have to operate by many rules and it didn't want to operate by many rules. For years, Netflix didn't share its viewership numbers. It was really holding tight on anything that could measure the success of a show, right? Because you can't, if, if you're going to have compensation based on success and based on performance, you need to know what the performance is. And back in the day, traditional television, you had ratings. You knew what the performance was. There were measurement criteria. So you could measure who could get paid, who should get paid, what, right? That's all that went all out the window of the last decade with Netflix originals. So then the challenge becomes one, not just what talent needs to get paid, but two, how do you determine what they're paid? How do you determine success? The measurement tools, the measurement mechanisms, were all broken. So what part of this work stoppage is right now, and where I do find a little bit of sympathy with the actors with talent is, okay, we need to measure success. We need to figure out a consensus mechanism for measuring how a show does and compensate people based on that. And to the extent that that is uh, is realistic, I actually don't have a big problem with it. We'll see if the actors have enough leverage to implement it, but here's what they're looking for. Apparently, they're looking for 2% of the revenue each show generates. Uh, The measurement tool they're proposing is called content valuation from a company called uh, Parrot Analytics. Um, It uses Google searches, social media mentions, and other data sources to measure demand for each show. They said the metric is not trying to determine viewership, but rather the impact of each show on a company's revenue man, that is tough. And I think it's really evident of of where the business model is broken and where it does not serve talent very well. And that, yeah, it's just more difficult to measure how much money uh, can be ascribed, how much re- revenue is generated from one particular show or one particular movie. And when that happens, it gets harder to determine compensation. Oddly enough, the president of SAG-AFTRA, uh, the union president is Fran Drescher of The Nanny. Uh, some of you may remember her. is known for kind of a satirical, exaggerated Brooklyn accent on that show. Um, so kind of Funny that she ended up being the union president, but she says that it's essential to pay performers for the success of a show. Um, And the union says, hey, we're not married to this parrot parrot analytics. But what she's saying is if the studios and the streamers aren't going to propose something, they have no choice but to propose this. And and I see that that's reasonable. I don't think that's unreasonable, but I, I just don't I don't know if they have the leverage. I don't know. I mean, Netflix has been made so much content over the last few years. I mean, they've got years of runway where people can just go searching back through, you know, old content or massive libraries that are already available on the streaming services. And these actors, I mean, they're going to start running out of money soon. Like the vast majority of them don't have anything. It was a friend of mine who is an actor said, well, listen, we've so many of us are already used to being broke. I don't think it's any different." and fair point there. However, there's lots of actors that were used to living above the poverty line that all of a sudden can't work. Are they going to be able to hold out? So I, I have a little sympathy. I see where they're coming from. I just don't know how realistic it is given the alternatives. And I don't know how realistic it is that we can figure out what a measurement tool or set of criteria will be where we actually can effectively measure performance here. The other big issue that's popping up in a lot of these union negotiations, obviously, hey, the, these unions are not stupid. All these uh, entertainment and technology substitutes that I've acknowledged, they realize that those are a problem, too. And then with AI on the horizon, those are going to become even a bigger problem. Um, so I think nobody really knows whether the studios or the, the talent unions r- really how AI is going to be used. So everyone's pretty speculative. But here are kind of the issues that um, that are being brought to the table right now in terms of AI. Uh, the union wants to require that a performer has to consider to any use of their performance to train an AI system. Fair enough. Everybody has rights in and their publicity, their image, name, and likeness. Hey, if you, I need to consent to you, a studio using my image, to go train an AI model so you can't go pop out, you know, uh, Netflix can't go pop out AI Denzel Washington without paying Denzel Washington. Okay, fair enough. But then apparently SAG-AFTRA also wants to get the studios to get union consent for all individual uses of AI, and the studios refuse to grant that, and I don't think they're going to, right? I and mean, fair enough, if someone using existing IP that somebody else owns or publicity rights for an actor, great, you need their consent, but just general AI, sorry, the networks and the studios aren't going to say, okay, we're going to give you all authority and consent over our use of AI. Uh, No, I mean, these studios are going to track AI, see, can we replicate a traditional content experience based just off AI by paying nobody? And if they're able to do it, I'm sorry, but these actors and these writers are screwed. The writers even more so because if AI and chat GPT can pop out a script for free, then you don't have to pay any writer. And honestly, you shouldn't be obligated to, right? And you shouldn't say when, where the WGA, the Writers Guild, was clearly biting off more than it could chew. Uh, it was demanding that every show be re- required to be staffed by a minimum number of writers. That's ridiculous. Like if you don't need five writers for a show, then why hire five writers? And one thing, uh, the show Yellowstone, apparently Taylor Sheridan is able to write the entire thing nearly by himself. If Taylor Sheridan could pop out Yellowstone by himself, why are you telling anybody they got to go hire three assistants or subwriters to sit, sit around and twiddle their thumbs at you know $200,000 a year just because you need to get more work for your union members, right? So I think another instance of the the writer, these guilds, these talent guilds, overestimating how much leverage they have in the current environment. Environment, even though I can sympathize with them just a bit and then there's a lot of people who are of the opinion that this is just reshuffling the chairs on the deck of the Titanic, that the traditional television industry in particular is, ought, is dead. The traditional film industry from a cultural perspective is already dead because we just make Marvel movies. We just pump out superhero movies to appeal to an international audience anyways. There's definitely some reason to believe that that is the case. A lot of people are focusing on some commentary recently from Disney CEO Bob Iger, who did just re-up his contract. Uh, they were thinking he was only going to stay on until the end of 2023, but he says, hey, I've really... We've got a lot of work to do over here at Disney and I've got to write this ship. So he's going to stay on till 2026. Um, And he's essentially acknowledged he's throwing up the white flag and saying that the traditional television model is dead. Um, television will not be core to Disney any longer. They're going to be looking to sell assets. And here's a comment that Bob Iger had regarding the talent union strikes in the future of the business. There clearly is content that they create that is core to Disney, but the distribution model, the business model that forms the underpinning of that business, and that is delivering great profits over the years, is definitely broken, and we have to call it like it is. When I came back, one of the things I discovered was that the disruptive forces that have been preying on that business for a while are greater than I thought. It's eye-opening. There's a reality to it that we have to come to grips with with and we have to come to grips with it now and essentially what he's acknowledging is that network TV is on its deathbed only your grandparents watched CSI God knows what on CBS at 830 now with all this content available on all these uh, content offerings competing for eyeballs the, the network TV that we grew up with where you had a bunch of channels a few main broadcast networks and a bunch of cable shows and people scheduled when they were gonna watch something and there was scarcity that's gone and it's not coming back viewership is a fraction of what it was even 10 years ago and just a minuscule fraction of what it was 20, 30 years ago, and the advertiser dollars are no longer going to be there. So people, you you know, we can make all these arguments that do seem somewhat justified. You could say that actors and writers are getting the shaft, but at some point, uh, if the business model isn't there to support it, uh, a union deal or a collective bargaining agreement uh, that that does not align with that business model is not going to work. So it could just be a negotiating ploy on Iger's part, but I think uh, uh, he's not the only one saying this, and I think a lot of people are going to have to sober up around the future Future of the television business, and accept that streaming is the only way to go. And so, you know, hopefully, they can work something out that makes sense for everybody on paying actors and writers for additional success of shows that start on streaming. Um, but overall, I think uh, I think this is going to turn out in the studios' fa- studios and networks' favor. And we'd be remiss for going over the troubles with Hollywood lately without talking about woke is broke, diversity, equity, and inclusion. I think everyone's seen since that whole campaign. I I believe maybe it was 2014, Oscars So White. Man, hashtag activism really has tainted the entertainment industry and the content world over the last decade or so, and and seemingly forcing the notions of diversity into storytelling and into into content development where it really doesn't belong. Um, Clifton, going back to his commentary, which has been great on this topic, audiences don't hate diverse characters. What they hate is being slammed as bigots for rejecting bad work from pretentious, unskilled activists posing as writers pretentious unskilled activists posing as writers if the demography of your characters becomes more important than the story your story will probably suck and a lot listen a lot of these troubles that Hollywood's undergoing they did it to themselves man they they looked at their industry which was already incredibly diverse okay it ridiculous the notion that Hollywood was not diverse through the 90s and the 2000s okay and the whole ridiculousness we saw it around Black Panther with everyone casually forgetting every black uh, African American actor who had ever appeared in an action movie to pretend Black Panther Panther was the first African-American action movie in the history of the film industry. It was ridiculous. What happened to Will Smith? What happened to Denzel Washington? What happened to Wesley Snipes? And I can give a whole lot more examples if you want me to, right? Um, But it's like the entertainment industry woke up one day, and in an industry where it's already incredibly difficult to succeed, 99% of the white people who try to succeed in the entertainment industry fail right? In that industry, we said, wait a second, the thumb needs to be on the scale to balance this to reflect the numbers in society, period, right? For no reason whatsoever. And this, if anything, created a product that should not be informed by the color, the demographic qualities, the people involved that should be based just on artistic, that would be the entertainment industry. If the story does not lend to a certain race or ethnic bent or anything like that, or any gender issues, then why are you, why are you infiltrating that into the story? People just want to be entertained they want to see interesting Stories they want compelling content they Want to see compelling people and the notion That before 2014 those people Were all white is completely ridiculous That simply is not true there's been a ton Of diverse programming across a number Of different mediums for well over you could maybe Say in the 80s in 1987 you could Say you know something the entertainment industry Is too white then the 90s comes along And there's just tons of african-american Based and hispanic based everyone forgets George lopez uh, uh sitcoms uh, I the film industry and the competition. Position of who's starring in films gets more diverse and, and it's like it's another one of these situations where the problem was already solved and we said you know something we can't accept that the problem solved we have to create a new problem and that's what happened and what clifton refers to with these movies like that female ghostbusters like, okay great go go create a female ghostbusters but don't just rub it in everyone's face constantly about how they need to accept a female a female ghostbusters or else they're misogynist because that's what this is coming off like If There's a way to simply promote A little diversity and understand That we're not just looking to peddle out the same Product with the same looking people over and over Without making it the number one Priority and the sole primary filter Through which we view the content I think they will be a lot more successful but it's A little too late for that now I think Hollywood In the content world has been tainted in a lot of Ways and in the eyes of a lot of people um, And so I'm not You're going to see massive transformational changes Coming out of this um, and I I gotta be honest, in the the world of advancing technology, this is probably gonna end up much like the writer's strike in 2008, which uh, ended up working out not that well for the writers, contracted the industry, because the studios decided to make less films. But these labor struggles, always interesting from a pure negotiation standpoint, who has more leverage, who can hold out longer. Uh, SAG just went on strike about, about two weeks ago, so we're gonna see entertainment industry shut down like it hasn't been since 1960. Moving on to the world of criminal justice, rapper 50 Cent, no stranger to the criminal justice system. He put out an Instagram post a couple weeks ago proclaiming that Los Angeles is finished and then posted a video uh, of my friend John McKinney, who's a a deputy district attorney here in Los Angeles, describing how a judge uh, in Los Angeles had had essentially outlawed the cash bail system that you could no longer hold certain criminals, uh, detain them before their trial based on cash bail and would have to let them out and just hope that they showed up at their arraignment or for their trial. Um, so what is going on here? What What uh, is the actual legal impact? Um, is 50 Cent correct? And and what's the thinking behind these rules that, you know, are essentially overturning certain aspects of the criminal justice system that have, have existed for a long time? Because not only did this happen in Los Angeles, this also just happened even more significantly in Illinois at the state level. This week, Illinois Supreme Court upholds measure designed to end cash bail. A law ending cash bail was supported by Democratic legislators and government J.B. Pritzker, but challenged by prosecutors who said it would make the state less safe. Okay, so what is pre-trial detention? You obviously hear about bail, anyone who's watched Law and Order or seen any movie from My Cousin Vinny to The Verdict to God Knows What, you understand that you've heard the notion of bail, but what actually is it? So it is pre-trial detention. It means that you can be incarcerated before you've actually had a trial. Because once again, your constitutional right is to a fair and speedy trial, okay? It's not to not be detained before that actual trial. Uh, obviously, if you, you are just languishing in prison for years on end, that has been a violation of your constitutional rights, but in and of itself, detaining you. If not, you you couldn't jail anyone who was arrested. So what happens? Uh, uh, If there's probable cause, that is the standard to arrest a person. If there's probable cause that they are committing a crime, you can arrest them and detain them. Then you go and detain them, you book them, and then you set a degree of bail. And what is that bail for? It is to one, ensure that they show up at their arraignment or at their trial, or two, if they are a threat to themselves or others, and uh, if the criminal justice system deems Them a threat, uh, you can detain them so that they don't hurt anybody else. If not, literally, you could have someone go on a murderous rampage, shoot fifty people. You go detain them and say, "Well, hey, you know, you're innocent until proven guilty. We're going to let you out until your trial and until you get your day in court." That's obviously not how it goes. So how does it go? Um, Well, here's here's how the New York Times described. What's going on in Illinois? The Illinois Supreme Court upheld a measure on Tuesday, eliminating cash bail in the state, finding that Democratic legislatures, uh, legislators acted properly when they passed the law. The Illinois law, which went beyond simple, uh, similar bail overhauls in other states, was part of a national push to reduce jail populations and end a system in which wealth can determine whether a defendant returns home to await trial. But it infuriated many county prosecutors and sheriffs who asserted that the law passed improperly and is making the state less safe. Okay, so let's look at the logical flaws in the push against cash bail, to outlaw cash bail. One, the, the two objectives. One, reduce jail populations. That's not in and of itself a good objective. There's nothing benign. There's nothing admirable. That's not a worthwhile objective in and of itself. It's not just a good idea to have a smaller prison population. The prison population is supposed to be a reflection of the criminality. If there's a lot of people who have committed crimes, if there are a lot of people who deserve to be in jail, a lot of people who pose a threat to themselves or others, there should be a large prison population. That's objective number one. To, to enforce the law and to protect innocent civilians. And the, the jail population is a measurement of criminality. Just having small letting you could have a small prison population by simply letting everybody out right now. That'll drive that population down to zero. Of course, there'll be lawless, lawlessness, mayhem and chaos in the streets. And that, of course, is not the type of society that we want. So the objective of reducing jail populations, that's completely illegitimate in and of itself. Then you've got a claim, a system in which wealth can determine whether a defendant returns home to, uh, to a await. Trial. Well, not necessarily, because bail. Is dependent on a number of factors. It's discretionary and determined by the judge, right? So once again, your constitutional right to have a speedy trial, to go through the process of arraignment, uh, of uh, evidence collection of your prosecution, and having your day in court in front of a jury of your peers, having that in some sort of reasonable uh, uh, time frame. Uh, and but what's happening here? What those who are uh, uh, passing laws against cash bail, they're not. They're not claiming that people are having their rights violated by languishing in prison for for uh, you know in amount of time before they have a trial and then they're determined innocent and then they're let go and it turns out oh my god they were in prison for two three years that's not what they're acu- that's not what they're saying they're saying regardless of the crime within a certain level of severity regardless of the regardless of the facts and these, these laws are for nonviolent crimes particularly they are claiming that simply if you are detained before your trial that in and of itself is a violation of your civil rights and that also once again is ridiculous because going back to it arrests are made based on probable cause that a crime has occurred. If there is probable cause, you can be detained. Then, of course, there's two. Once again, there's two objectives. There's two goals in instituting cash bail or implementing other mechanisms determinative of whether or not you stay in jail until your trial. One if people determine that you're a flight risk, right? You, the system needs to ensure that you show up for your arraignment so you can be heard, heard. You can hear the charges against you, plead innocent or guilty, be there with your attorney if you have one, and two, to show up to your trial. So, if based on the facts, and this is how the system has worked forever, and it's grading on a curve amongst the other legal systems in the universe, it's been a pretty good one. Uh, if the judge determines that you are a flight risk, you can increase the ca- You increase the bail, right? Because you increase the consequences of not showing up to either the arraignment or the trial, right? So what factors are taken into consideration there? Do you have a prior record? Have you skipped trials before? Um, do you have houses in other jurisdictions? Do you have family in other jurisdictions? Have you shown that you a uh, disregard for the legal system that suggests that you might disregard your obligation to show up for your arraignment or your trial? So one. that's one objective and it's an, a completely legitimate objective. The second objective, if you are a, ha- a threat to yourself or others, if you're violent, right? Machete-wielding maniac, right? I- you don't let that person back onto the street until their trial, so you could just, you know, they're not innocent, just because they're innocent until they're proven guilty. Like, you have to, based on the facts at hand, you make a determination of whether you have to detain this person to maintain public safety and not have this person harm others. So these are subjective decisions based on the facts at hand that we've left it to the court system and the judges to determine. So what they're saying is that the criteria of measure- You know, essentially what the judge is saying that if it's a higher likelihood that you're dangerous or if there's a higher likelihood that you might skip town and, you know, know, miss your arraignment, miss your trial and not show up, you increase the amount of cash that you put up for bail that you will lose if you do not show up uh, uh, for your trial. Right. So this is a matter of incentive. The whole notion is you increase the consequences of not showing up for your trial or not showing not showing up for your arraignment. You increase the consequences of violating uh, of of breaking the law again while you're waiting for your trial. And if you do so, that's going to disincentivize people from either skipping town uh, or for committing more crimes. And what do you know? Look at how the look at what the evidence shows. Criminals who aren't subject to cash bail commit crimes at a high, far rate than uh, criminals that are subject to cash bail. Right? If it turns out that you're going to lose all the money if you commit another crime, or if you don't show up to your trial, but what happens? You don't commit another crime, and you don't, and you end up showing up for trial. If you don't have cash bail, the numbers of people skipping out on their trial and not showing up and committing more crimes increases exponentially. It's just a matter of basic incentives here, yet we've we've put these ridiculous, completely invalid objectives of a reduced prison population in and of itself, and uh, simply you know this misguided attempt to make a more even society between the rich and the poor. Part of the bail system, if a person is wealthy, you increase the amount of the bail because you increase the consequences, Proportionally to their wealth. Okay. The, the, it, once again, the people overturning these laws are pushing against these laws. They're not even claiming that we're violating the principles in which we've operated on for decades and centuries. They're just saying, nah, it's, it's an unfair system. We need less people in jail. That's what they're saying. Um, and a similar thing happened in Los Angeles where, you know, we had a no cash bail policy in place during the pandemic because I guess you could say during the pandemic for lower level crimes, there was an interest in reducing the prison population because there was uh, an airborne virus that might spread in the prisons. Okay, fair enough. That's unique circumstances. But once those circumstances are no longer at play, you change back to the system you had in place before. But no, this judge, the superior court judge named Lawrence Riff said no. Uh, and uh, it's, it's unconstitutional to detain people uh, before their trial based on the amount of money they can or cannot find to put up for bail. Just for certain lower-level nonviolent crimes. But here's the thing. If it's a violation of constitutional rights for nonviolent crime, wouldn't it be a violation of constitutional rights as well for violent crime? What is supposed to be the distinction there in terms of constitutional rights because once again innocent before uh, Innocent until proven guilty that applies to all crimes. Do you get to a, a, a do you have a right to a speedy trial in front of a jury of your peers? That's the, those are factors Those are part of the constitutional rights of every individual regardless of what the crime is But for some reason these judges now say wait a second We can determine what the constitutional rights are based on the crime and it uh, the, They're essentially saying that the objectives of One, ensuring that you show up for your arraignment or your trial or two, ensuring that you don't commit another crime or hurt other people or pose a threat to the community can no longer be handled based on monetary, monetary consequences and incentives. And this is insane uh, so while 50 cent might have been exaggerating just a touch because once this does have to do more so with lower-level crimes um, uh, it, it, but we see what the impact on on that is on general lawlessness right we see people with rap sheets 15 20 30 arrests long and we're like wait a second why aren't these people in jail it's because we keep on letting them out and they don't show up for their arraignments they don't show up for their trials and this is a reason why so incredibly misguided uh, yet despite all the evidence we've seen that this so-called more enlightened approach, softer approach towards criminal uh, uh, criminal justice that some of the blue states in particular tried to take over the last, let's call it five to seven years, and especially over the last three years since George Floyd, despite all the evidence showing that this does not work, that if you give criminals an inch, they will take a mile. They keep on doubling down on this idiocy. Um, and at least in, in the, the case of Los Angeles, this was one rogue superior court judge. This theoretically can be overturned. It's not like the legislators or the voters actually uh, approved of this. In Illinois, and this is just insane, this is a relatively, you know, purple state. It's not necessarily a deep blue state, at least by some respects, a lot of rural territory or whatnot, but they are passing the bluest of laws. The legislators there believe that there should be no ability to detain a person before their trial. So you're going to have, uh, we know how this is going to play out. You're going to get tons of criminals, rap sheets, 15, 20, 30 arrests long. That get let out back on the street after they've committed a crime and they're going to get arrested again. And this is going to continue like clockwork and it's uh, going to do nothing but hurt the people of the state of Illinois. Um Um, but I guess they don't learn their lesson. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. Now, no matter where you fall on the issue, you cannot deny that one of the issues that is absorbing a ton of American mindshare is what is the appropriate place in our society for transgender individuals? It has somehow become a critical hot button topic that is dominating a lot of American discourse. You could sit there and think, OK, wait, what healthy, thriving society dedicates this much attention to this issue? What what healthy, thriving society is this issue that big a deal? But that's a conversation for another time Um, in terms of where our president Joe Biden thinks is an appropriate place for transgender individual is the position of assistant secretary of health and human services yes joe biden appointed a person named rachel levine lived the first 50 years of their life 50 some odd years of their life as richard levine as the assistant secretary of health and human services so richard levine sorry rachel levine popped up in the news this week with some commentary about puberty the comment when admiral levine was being interviewed adolescence is hard and puberty is hard what if you're going through the wrong puberty what if you inside feel that you're female but now you're going through a male puberty fascinating conversation, fascinating topic. Let's look into the background of this person. Once again, uh, Richard Levine, for the first 50-some-odd years of their life, had two children, a former linebacker, and in fact, in an article that, that was praising uh, Admiral Levine laud- laudably, referred to them as a former linebacker and mother of two. Apparently, we're supposed to sit here and not see the blanket blatant absurdity of that description right there. But nevertheless, Richard Levine, Rachel Levine now, is saying that you can go through the wrong puberty saying that this is a person who's in a position of authority, one of the highest positions of authority in our government, in public health, someone that we're counting on to give shrewd, sensible wisdom on how our society should be ordered from a a health perspective and critically here in terms of childhood development is saying such a thing that somebody can be a child can be going through the wrong puberty. So let's look into what puberty is. Puberty is described as the pro- the process of physical changes through which a child's body matures into an adult body capable of sexual reproduction. It is initiated by horm- hormonal signals from the brain to the gonads, the ovaries in a girl, the testes in a boy. In response to the signals, the gonads produce hormones that st- stimulate libido and the growth, function, and transformation of the brain's bones, muscle, blood, skin, hair, breasts, and sex organs. Interesting. So let's look at some interesting features of this description. First off, puberty is sex-specific puberty and what changes you go through are completely different based on whether you are male and female. And how do you determine whether or not you are male and female? That is determined biologically by your chromosomes and your genetic makeup and it results in a completely different body composition based on the sex organs, uh, based on the hormones that your body produces. Essentially the human being, the the human species is a dimorphic species. It has two sexes, two supplemental sexes, the combination of which is made in order to create procreate and create new members of that species. Okay. So obviously this, this piece of development, puberty is critical to the development of a human being into a fully formed, uh, functioning adult yet. Rachel Levine says that what if inside you feel that you're female, but you're going through a male puberty? That is essentially saying that the male puberty that you are going through, which is objective, biological, and undeniable, it is observable. It's something that is is an objective truth of humanity and nature. If a person's mind says to the contrary, then we should elevate and prioritize what a person's mind is saying over their biological function, over reality. Okay, and Rachel Levine is saying that that's how we should govern society. That we need to put as Rachel Levine, as Richard Levine, went ahead and did, went on completely changed their body composition through hormone therapy, through surgery, and now represents themselves as completely different than their bio, than their biology and their development led them to be. If this person this person is now saying that we should do the same to children based on whether or not their mind tells them something that conflicts with their physical biological reality. this is utter madness. It's not just, but there's one level of madness that is happening or that someone would say this. It's an order of magnitude greater madness that this person is in a position of authority to dictate how we approach health in this country. This is insane. And people could sit here and say, well, that's hateful. How on earth is this hateful? Someone is giving bad medical advice that a person saying that children should disrupt the the main developmental process through which they land through they change and they evolve into an adult being with functioning organs based on whether or not they have something in their mind that tells them otherwise based on a dissociative disorder. What are other dissociative disorders? It's called uh, anorexia, body dysmorphia, where someone is skinny but thinks they're fat, where what they're seeing, what their mind is telling them conflicts with actual reality. In such case, do we tell them yes, what your mind is telling you is actually true? Do You say we should take steps to affirm your body or your physical reality with what your mind is telling you which is a deviation from reality no of course we don't we do not take this approach towards any other dissociative disorder on earth nor have we ever you know the last time the last time and the medical community advocated for surgery to deal with a mental physical surgery to deal with a mental health issue was giving lobotomies we realized that that was barbaric and insane, and we stopped doing it. Now, there is a major push in the medical community being led by this individual, who I'm going to get some more of her personal details in a moment, who's in a position of authority as the assistant health secretary, telling people, yes, children who have a dissociative disorder, we need to give them puberty blockers to interfere with their fundamental bodily processes that turn them into a, a functioning human being in order to align with their mental delusion. This is barbaric, and this is grotesque. Even more barbaric that looking at how Rachel Levine, sorry Richard Levine talks about their life. Richard Levine has two children. Okay, here's a com- his comment on his children. Richard Levine was asked, "Do you wish that you transitioned earlier, earlier in life, and didn't deal with your dissociative disorder for without uh, a surgery for a longer time?" And here is his response. I have no regrets because if I had transitioned when I was young, then I wouldn't have my children. I can't imagine a life without my children. And he will say this and people will look at this comment and not realize the grotesque irony you're telling people you're advocating for children to undergo changes that will prevent them from having children. At the same time, you're saying that the greatest thing that happened in your life, that you can't imagine a life without your children because you were able to, the the male reproductive process that you were engaged in, you're glad that that was it because you were in line with your biology, okay? You were in line with your sexual reproductive organs, and you're telling other people, you're giving the guidance for them to conflict with that for children to take medication to interfere with that at the same time, and we're supposed to sit here and take this person seriously and look at this as anything other than grotesque and barbaric, and that's exactly what it is. So last week, I talked a little bit about a phenomenon of publicizing the private in this day and age. For some reason, we always want to take things that are fine if they kind of exist within a private sphere and we want to publicize them. And I get it. We're in the age of social media. Everyone's a celebrity. Everyone's mind and thoughts is on display at all times. Everyone's got a public persona. Okay, I get it. Obviously, this is going to be uh, an era with more public activity than private activity from before the Internet and social media. Fine. Sure enough. Um, Last week, this was in regards to Jonah Hill and his girlfriend and his girlfriend releasing a bunch. Texts from Jonah, kind of laying down Jonah's boundaries for his relationship. I thought those boundaries were too strict, but obviously it did not rise to the level of something that should have been publicized as a type of thing to stay private. Um, so to take this in a little bit more of a risque direction, for a long time, as the sexual revolution of the 60s and 70s kind of, you know, uh, uh, seeped into society more permanently, and we went from a very puritanical, very uptight, prudish society back in the middle of the century, last century, into a more free flowing, you know, more kind of libertine post sexual revolution society, uh, everyone would justify, you know, a variety of sexual activity or promoting sexual activity with who cares what two consenting adults do within the privacy of their own bedroom. And everyone would kind of scratch their channel and think, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense. No one should be. Be that invasive. No one should really care what goes on inside somebody else's bedroom. The problem is now all those things that were kept inside the bedroom that we were kind of lectured to not care about because who cares what's going on inside the bedroom. That's all now out in the public sphere in a variety of ways. This popped up over the last week with an incident around this digital influencer, this digital personality named Adam 12. I guess this guy named Adam Grand Mason. He's married to a porn star named Lena the plug. Charming names, charming individuals, of course. And so he has this, uh, this podcast called The No Jumper Podcast. And while a lot of people, I'm sure, out there haven't heard of this guy, this is not a small podcast. These are these are famous people. No Jumper has about 960,000 followers on uh, or Adam 12 has about 960,000 followers on Twitter. Lena has, you know, seven figure followings on a number of platforms. And here's their podcast. Their podcast is interviewing porn stars or other women and then having sex with them and talking about it. I just say, okay, ha ha. Everyone should go have their fun. What type of prude are you? Who cares that they're going and having lots of threesomes? You know, however, I don't think it's necessarily the healthiest thing for society to be this aggressively raunchy to put, you know, people who are supposed to be married, they recently had a child, putting your sex life on display like this and not in a kind of, hey, I'm a sex therapist and I want to talk about sex so people can, can kind of learn the tricks of the trade and have a healthier sex life, more just for shits and giggles because, hey, this is fun and raunchy and I think that people are interested in raunchy stuff. I mean, that's the only reason these people are putting this on display and, you know, well I'm not married and okay, we're going to be a little forgiving with kind of uh, uh, disregarding the sanctity of marriage here. For society to be so supportive and forgiving of this behavior, I think is probably a bad sign. And some people might be sitting out there saying, well, okay, you know, something, it's kind of harmless and uh, uh, society hasn't really fallen through that. The the bottom hasn't dropped out of society, but having all this available pornography and nudity. But on the other hand, you could kind of say, well, I don't know some of the, some of the issues that we found in society in terms of depression, anxiety, fraying of the social fabric, maybe they're not direct consequences of all this stuff, but you know, this could be second, third, fourth order effects of all all this. Um, but beyond that, the notion that, hey, you, you don't talk about y- your wife having sex with other people and you don't be so open about it because this usually does not end well, because th- there's a reason. It's not like someone just pulled it, you know, monogamy or at least something about the uh, the sanctity of marriage or having discretion about extramarital affairs and things like that. Uh, one one person in 782 AD did not pull this out of their ass and everyone just believed it, like society and human beings kind of, real, you know, made observations about, how human beings operate and work and said, okay, you know something, uh, whether it's it's puritanical monogamy or something within that range, marriage should be considered a fairly sacred institution and we shouldn't be that open. There should be some taboos and boundaries about talking about sex and your extramarital affairs and all these types of things in public. And that was put on display quite a bit this last week on this Adam 22 situation. Um, so at, uh, throughout their marriage, Adam and Lena, the plug, they had never, it was only with women. Uh, Lena had not had sex with another other man since she had been uh, with Adam. And then they decided to go ahead and make an exception for this and allow Lena to have sex with a porn star named Jason Love. Jason Love's a porn star, obviously considers himself quite the stud, considered quite the stud. And uh, with Adam's blessing and pretty vocally, he was fine with, hey, my my wife's going to go ahead and get screwed by Jason Love. And this is great. And even you went ahead and said, uh, bought her a Lamborghini, publicly flaunted that he bought her a Lamborghini for having a heterosexual sex scene with Jason Love, another porn star, and getting have, getting screwed by Jason Love. This scene appeared to be something that was worth celebrating, right? And you have the whole notion of a cuck, and that's supposed to be a negative connotation that, well, wait a second, someone who celebrates or is into watching their woman be violated sexually by another man, there's something wrong with you. This is a bad thing. This is not a thing to be celebrated. But because, you know, living in the era of sex positivity and how dare anybody shame Anybody uh, and and thinking that was this is kind of cute and amusing and I'm so avant-garde Adam 22 said no I'm gonna be publicly vocal about I'm fine with my wife filming a porn scene with another man And I'm even gonna go so far as to celebrate and buy her a gift This seemed very strange, but Adam 22 didn't seem too bothered by it. However, like, uh, like I said there's a reason these things don't end well there's a reason that there's rules and taboos about this stuff and so Jason Love goes and gets uh, gets interviewed about this and even I think he was trying to pull some of his punches saying hey yeah, you know I- I'm fine I-, I obviously think I'm better in bed than Adam 22 but no disrespect I think his, his wife loved having sex with me I think she liked it better um, of course that lit a bit of a fire under Adam 12 that did not sit so well with him his response to Jason Love there hey Jason Love I trust you to pork my wife and it seems like that cloud is getting to your head. I'm talking real, real spicy and I ain't really feeling it. Uh, then going on to defend his own honor. Number two, my D game when I'm serving it, man, it's just like your mama's home cooking. There's a special ingredient. I'm then moved on to an ominous third point. Hey, Jason Love, don't make me expose you. And you know what I'm talking about? It could get real, real messy out there. Interesting. Uh, so do you see how these things work? When you, when you are emotionally invested in a person and kind of come together in the institution of marriage and have a child, the notion that, that all this freewheeling sex and polyamory, that there's just no consequences to it and it all stays nice and clean and everyone's just having some nice old-fashioned good fun, that's not how it works, okay? Eventually, the, the kind of emotional uh, boundaries that get violated and the intimacy that gets violated, eventually that pisses somebody off. There's a reason why we have these taboos and boundaries in place. There's a reason why for decades and centuries, nobody would be caught dead publicly talking about their wife having sex with other men because there was just a societal taboo like you didn't want that was going to lower your status in society. Now it could theoretically elevate your status because you get more followers and more people listen to your stupid podcast with you and your wife talking about having sex with all these other people. Eventually, it always catches up with you and it goes wrong. And I think we're seeing a very good example of that right here. And so you can see Adam-22 trying to assert himself, trying to assert his manhood and his status and say, oh, hold on, I let you have sex with my wife, but now I'm the man in this situation and you need to be subservient and bend down to me, right? These types of ego games always get involved, but it's not working out too well for Adam-12. Antonio Brown now took some pot shots at him and and talking about insinuating that he wanted to have sex with Adam-22's wife instead. And now Adam-22 looks like an absolute fool. And not that he didn't look like kind of a fool before, but now it's so much that not even he can... uh, uh, not even he can deny it I and mean, he's the laughing stock of the town right now, and he thought this stuff was all cute uh, He wants to uh, accuse people of clout chasing It's like bro You were clout chasing by letting other people have sex with your wife and talking about it and being so like Cutesy and, and all these cute smarmy comments. Ha ha ha. Okay Well if he wants to have sex with my wife, then he needs to respect me He was like no you got disrespected by the guy having sex with your wife in the first place So it's like how do we get to this point where a public figure thinks that they can get clout, that they can clout chase off these types of things, that this type of, you know, polyamory and talking about, you know, infidelity and your wife having sex with other people. What even gave him the thought in the first place? Obviously it went wrong and he smacked smacked himself right into a wall. Uh, But what gave him the idea in the first place that this could be a good idea, that this could be good content? And then it, it got me to thinking, about some of these terms that have popped up over the last few years and and, uh, having to do with sex positivity. So let's go into what they they consider sex positivity to be. Uh, It's described somewhere as all about being open-minded and non-judgmental about how people live sexually. That means everyone from queer to kinky peers, although one can uh, possibly identify as both. Sex positivity is important, not just for others, but for yourself too. Think of your most open-minded friend, a Samantha from Sex and the City. You know that no matter what you're experiencing personally, when you're with Samantha, it's a judgment-free zone. Think about how amazing it feels to be accepted for who you truly are. So I once heard a comment, don't be so open-minded that your brains fall out. And honestly, the same thing can apply to sex, okay? We're not, the the idea that having any taboos, having any concern about judgment, any boundaries around sex means we're like back in the days of the Puritans and the the freaking Mayflower and your Amish people with your dresses not coming up above your ankles. I mean, that's what what they're trying to tell you. That's the message that they're purporting to push out uh, uh, amongst society, that there are no boundaries on sex, no boundaries about talking about sex, your preferences, your activities, and then you think you won't, you know something? Maybe we need to pull back a little bit. Maybe there needs to be, Maybe not everyone should be Samantha and sex in the city Samantha and sex in the city was the comedic relief. She was raunchy. She was fun It was there to get laughs. She was not there to be emulated She was not there shown as the good friend who had a healthy outlook on society whose friendship was healthy She was there to be laughed at least partially laughed at right. That's not the example So sex positivity think it's safe safe to say we've taken it a little too far And then you saw some of the uh, the other buzzwords that kind of emanated from sex positivity slut shaming uh, originally slut shaming and the reason that people were telling, you know, uh, opposing sl- slut shaming, it was specifically within the confines of women being accused of being partially responsible for being raped or sexually assaulted because they were dressing provocatively. That's fine. Right. You, but I think that was a strange word to use slut shaming uh, in, in terms of trying to uh, admonish people not to accuse women of being partially responsible for being raped. They, they were not The provocative, provocative dress is not uh, a justification for being raped. Of course not, but they took the word slut shaming, that, hey, you can't sl- shame anyone for being a slut. And then they started applying it to so many different circumstances and, and activities, right? It wasn't just about not blaming the victim and rape. It said you can't shame anyone or judge anyone for their own sexual behavior. Anyone can be as raunchy, as open, as lascivious, as open with sex, as publicly transparent about their kinks and their personal desires in their sex life with no judgment or no shame whatsoever. And, you know, something, once again, there's a reason we have shame. Shame is like your pain sensors on your body, okay? You have pain sensors on your body because when you feel pain, it gives your brain, it gives your body the signal to no longer go in the direction of the pain, whether putting your hand, touching a stove, being electrocuted or whatnot, right? So uh, maybe we need a little bit of shame. Maybe the the idea of having some boundaries around some things that, you know, just with like with Jonah Hill, there's some things that even if they're distasteful, you handle them privately. Hey, some things, even if, you know, you can justify me and say, oh, that's just, I was having fun. This is a thing that I like. These are my own sexual preferences and tastes that maybe, you know, either one might take it too far or two, you certainly don't publicly flaunt. But these days, if you even suggest that, if you even suggest, hey, don't publicly flaunt this, maybe, you know, we should tie ourselves to notions of monogamy, notions of cleaner living, even if sometimes we stray for those. But this whole anything goes thing just doesn't work out. You try to suggest that these days and then they call them they call you some oppressive prude. They call you like the preacher from the movie who's telling everybody that they're damned and that they're gonna go to hell if they have sex before marriage, right? Maybe there are gradations to this. Maybe there's a happy medium. Maybe had that happy medium been observed, a guy like Adam 22 would not be the laughing stock of society right now, having to scurry and kind of cover his tail about like which guys, everybody kind of getting a laugh at him for thinking they can have sex with his wife. Maybe these are the inevitable results of too much libertinism, too much sex positivity, okay? Maybe we need to redefine these terms. Certainly, Adam-12, some people are going to say, oh, he's laughing it to the bank. Well, listen, there's a lot, of, a lot of ways to make money. Not all of them are the most healthy and productive. Not all of them are good. I know things like integrity and dignity are, are devalued in this day and age, but maybe maintaining things like integrity and dignity overall work out better, even if you can get some internet clout for disregarding them and monetize that internet clout. These are things I think people should consider. Had Adam-22 considered them, maybe he'd be in a better place today. and we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. So in another follow-up to last week, last week we discussed how it's kind of odd that a couple of topics that you would think that would be neutral, that would just be topics of human interest or problems that that anyone can look at and say, wait a second, this is maybe something we should take a look at, are now being vilified or coded as right-wing or criticized by by certain media actors that, hey, if you're concerned about this, you might be some right-wing nutcase or something like that, right? Last week, it was uh, the harmful effects of birth control and even going so far as to say, if you're really into fitness and wellness, oh my God, you might be a tool for the far All right. So this week, yet another one of those issues popped up about the declining sperm count in Western civilization. New York Magazine released a piece, sperm fever, the tantalizing business opportunities and disorienting politics, the worldwide decline in man's most precious bodily fluid, that being sperm, of course. Okay, so what's going on here? It does seem to be that there's a decline in the global sperm count. Um, where do we track these studies? What's measuring this? What, what has indicated this? What has set off the alarms? Apparently, it tracks back to a 2011 study from Hebrew University in Mount Sinai Medical Center uh, titled Temporal Trends in Sperm Count analyzed about 43,000 men from 1973 to 2011 determined that sperm counts have declined by about 60% and the concentration of sperm declining by about 50%. Since then, there have been a number of studies that all seem to be uh, all seem to be supporting that. Clearly, at, at this point, it's difficult, if not impossible to deny there is a drop in the global sperm count. And any, it would seem let like any normal person would kind of, you know, once again, scratch their head and say, OK, what's going on here? And a number of people have submitted theories on this or evidence in support of those theories, combinations of pesticides, plastics, other uh, hormone disrupting uh, kind of facets of modern society that people consume a lot more in this hyper consumer world than they did when things were a little more natural, but more, you know, uh, consumer products, there weren't as many, there weren't as many creature comforts. Um, You had to do more uh, things more on your own, a little closer to nature, 50, 60, 70 years ago. And now with all these synthetic materials and whatnot, um, our life is more convenient. We have access to more, but these things are disrupting our hormones and triggering a decline in the sperm uh, global sperm count you know I, I haven't done all the research in the science uh, there seem to be a lot of credible sources that seem to support this uh, at this point of the fact wh- whatever the cause is i don't think there there is a consensus and i don't think anyone is denying it that the problem has arisen um so uh, that kind of tracks in two different in Two parallel lanes. One business-wise, businesses are springing up, saying, "Hey, we're we're going to reverse, your, uh, your, we're going to reverse the your decline in sexual virility and, and sperm count," and that's made a, a couple people very wealthy. You know, Hims and Roman were uh, early leaders in this space. People kind of identifying the problem of concerns about decline in sperm count and saying, "This is that we are going to get, we are going to provide a direct to consumer semi medicinal solution to this." But the more interesting piece of this is once again is getting coded politically, right? This has become part of the political culture war that now if you're concerned about a declining sperm count If you think if you are alienated from certain facets of modernity or you think modern society has a lot of in to- natural Toxins in them right now that are hurting people that need to be reversed That is now becoming associated with right-wing political leanings the conser- conservative movements And if you look at certain, you know, liberal publications even some more sinister organizations I mean slate this is from 2021, but it does emphasize and support the point that the New York magazine piece was making. Look at the title of this piece. The doomsday sperm theory embraced by the far right—the idea that male fertility is on the decline—is an old myth dressed up as science. Um, so these people get into it, and and they start, you know, off by just, to, of course, initially putting their anchor that you demonize uh, um, the general thesis or the topic in general by associating it with some people that you don't like, and saying that there are white white nationalists who believe in the so-called great replacement theory that there's some global elites trying to reduce the white population and elevate the non-white population and and anyone who dares think that there's a decline in the in the global sperm count or that people, modern society might not be entirely conducive or healthy for reproductive health and sperm count. Oh, you're a facet. Uh, you're obviously a useful idiot for the far right. So you see what they try to do, right? They kind of identify the topic. They identify the point of view. And instead of actually analyzing the point of view, determining, you know, putting it to scrutiny as to truthhood, falsehood, whatnot, they, assen- they uh, off the bat, they try to associate with certain bad people. So then you don't really have to ask any of the questions, or at least at that point, it's been so toxified and contaminated. It doesn't matter what the facts are. It doesn't matter if the problem that certain people are identifying actually is a problem. They want to say, if you think this is a problem, you're obviously associated with these people. Then as they do try to approach the science, this piece goes on to reference that 2011 study. And apparently it's, it's evidence that this is really, you know, just a, a kind of fever dream of the far right is that the sperm count measured was predominantly measured amongst Western society. Right, So uh, essentially what they're saying, because you're concerned about the decline in the sperm count amongst Western society, predominantly white, it means that you don't care what's going on in the non-white world, and thus all you really care about is that there's a decline in the people you think should be procreating. Meanwhile, all those people in the third world are procreating just fine. Um, and you know, by pure numbers, yes, third world countries do have a much higher birth rate uh, than developed nations these days. And believe it or not, that is a problem. That's not just a matter of, oh, well, we think all these developed... White people are going to be replaced by savage natives. It's like, no, you know, obviously you you think that there are a lot of good things about developed, modernized nations. And then if development and modernity is doing something to detract from overall living that might not be apparent on the surface, that's something that maybe we should pay attention to. It's not just that we need less of these people out in third world countries in Africa and Southeast Asia uh, procreating, but that's the implication. That's what they want you to believe. The thing is do they ever address the claims do they ever rebut the claim that in the modern world because we are we are exposed to more toxins and more synthetic uh, hormone disruptors in the consumer products that are far more prevalent in the modern world in, in the developed world than in the underdeveloped world that the ingredients that the chemicals in those products or in those in those materials are triggering a decline in the sperm count. And here's how they deflect from that. Uh, for example, many hypothesize that pollutants, especially chemicals and everyday plastics, are mo- the most likely culprit behind sperm decline. But other men, meaning men in underdeveloped countries, are just as likely to be exposed to these chemicals as Western men. Uh, are are we sure about that? Are, are we entirely sure that people in underdeveloped nations with far less consumer products that we use day to day that don't get nonstick pans that aren't staring at screens quite as much as people in the developed uh, developed world are, are kind of exposed to the same inputs, the same chemicals, um, the same materials, that that doesn't really pass the smell test. Anybody with common sense says, no, it's not necessarily a concern about white people having declining sperm count. It's that the products that people use in developed countries, which if on par seem to include a lot more white people than some of the smaller underdeveloped, smaller are uh, underdeveloped nations that do have higher population and population density uh, than the developed nations. The fact that modernity seems to be toxic is a problem. But they don't find this a problem, and they don't think you should find this to be a problem. They think if you find this to be a problem, it really is just you kind of signaling or taking off your mask to show that, that you're a believer in the great replacement theory, and you're concerned about modern you know, Westernized European Caucasian society, more conservative society being displaced by the third world. That's they They are not allowing for any actual good faith concern about the nature of our environment, its impact on the sperm count, and on sexual virility. And then when they really start grasping for straws, oh man, they said, not only is this not happening, to the extent that it is happening, it's a good thing. They then try to paint, this is how they always always go through the same trajectory here in trying to paint an issue that should be politically neutral as right wing. They said, first off, first, it's not happening. And second off, if it is happening, it's a good thing. Okay. And that's what they say here. I kid you not. This is the argument they make that, hey, our sperm count measured in the seventies was too high. And now it's just returning to normal levels. You've got to hear this. Though it might be intuitive that it's better for men to be overflowing with sperm, the historically low sperm counts likely don't represent an issue for even the Western portion of the human race. In fact, those low sperm counts weren't that different from the counts in other countries back in the 1970s. It's also not clear that sperm counts are being driven, uh, driven ever lower by some sinister factor. The sperm decline theory posits that Western sperm counts from the 1970s are an optimum from which we have declined and that this decline is something that needs to be fixed. But zero evidence supports either of these assumptions. Excuse me? They're suggesting, they're outright saying, hey, if there's, a big, if there's a 59% decline in the sperm count amongst Western men from 1973 to 2011, that's not even something to be worried about. That's not a problem. But while we were, we were at suboptimal, it's not such a great thing that men are overflowing with, sper- with, with sperm, that the sperm count being higher is not necessarily a good thing. What could they be suggesting here? It seems like yet another attack on anything traditionally masculine, that anything that is a signal or an indicator of male virility, of male health, of of the warrior fighting spirit to go out and pillage and plunder and conquer, and yes, I use those terms generally metaphorically and spread your seed, once again, generally metaphorically, because, hey, men are inclined to do that and to procreate. Anything that, that is indicative of that is inherently bad, that we're better off with low testosterone, low sperm count men who don't, that aren't so adventurous, aren't looking to spread their seed. That's essentially what they're saying here. So it seems like everything kind of tracks back to this strange gender dynamic where anything that anything that hints at traditional masculinity and virility, whatever the modern representation of that is, whether it's health, uh, health and fitness, wellness, procreation, sexual virility, sperm count. If there's a problem with that, if that has been reduced, you should not be worried about it. And if you are worried about it, you're some right wing conservative fever dream, uh, white nationalist type. who's just worried about the grape replacement theory. That's what they're telling you. We keep on checking the boxes, health and wellness, concern about birth control, concern about a decline in the sperm count. You're worried about any of these things. Hey, you might be a right wing lunatic, according to these media outlets. Uh, One could only imagine what the next battleground for this strange culture war is going to be. What kind of completely benign, like reasonable thing to be concerned about. They're now going to try to code you as some MAGA lunatic about, but you know they're going to keep on trying to do it because that they are like a broken record. This is their greatest hits and they're going to keep on playing it. I am Matt Belinsky. Once again, you can listen and subscribe to The Prevailing Narrative on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening right now. Make sure to follow me on my socials at Matt Belinsky, M-A-T-T-B-I-L-I-N-S-K-Y. Thanks once again so much, everybody. This is The Prevailing Narrative.
1: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?